If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow Germania, Divided and United, on Twitter and Instagram, at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.20, Anger Management. Last week, we covered the continued influence of the Franks within the Roman army during the Constantinian dynasty. Germanic Leyte continued to be settled within the territory of Gaul, and Fodorati mercenaries came to serve key posts in the Roman military. Intermarriage continued between Romans and Germans, but while the Germans could access wealth and status within Rome, they could not achieve that highest honor of being named Augustus. This week, we will continue to explore the relationship between Rome and the Germans along the Rhine River from roughly 360 to 375. I know I said we were going to turn back to the Lower Danube and the Goths, but I have decided to put that off yet again. Next week, for real this time, we will get back to the Goths, I promise. Last episode, I said that after the Battle of Strasbourg, the Alamanni never seriously threatened the Roman Empire again. That does not mean that they became loyal vassals. Especially after the death of Julian in 363, the Alamanni wanted to test the mettle of the new rulers of the empire. By 361, Julian was established as a strong military and administrative leader, operating out of Lutetia in Gaul. He had done such a good job that his troops proclaimed him Augustus in 360, an honor that Julian refused to accept. However, he was becoming too popular and strong for the paranoia of Constantius II, and so in an effort to weaken the Western Caesar, the Augustus demanded that Julian send him half of his troops for a planned campaign against the Sassanids. The bulk of these troops would have come from the Frankish Laetai settlers, and they had no interest in leaving their homelands to go fight in the Persian desert. Facing a mutiny, Julian allowed himself to be named Augustus for real this time, and then immediately had to take the army east to fight Constantius II. Before the civil war could really begin, however, Constantius II suddenly died. Julian was still technically the heir, so he became the sole Augustus. Unfortunately for those troops who did not want to leave their homes in Gaul unprotected, they were forced to stay with Julian as he took care of business in other parts of the empire. There was no imperial presence along the Rhine border until 364, when Valentinian became the Western Augustus and set up his court in Mediolanum, or Milan. Valentinian is noted for being a good soldier and capable general, who had the discipline you would expect from someone who grew up in the legions. Unfortunately, as Gibbon notes, quote, After he became master of the world, he unfortunately forgot that, where no resistance can be made, no courage can be exerted, and, instead of consulting the dictates of reason and magnanimity, he indulged the furious emotions of his temper, at a time when they were disgraceful to himself. The expressions which issued the most readily from the mouth of the emperor of the West were, strike off his head, burn him alive, let him be beaten with clubs till he expires, unquote. Basically the kind of attitude that leads to permanent rebellion. The senior administrator within the Gallic territory at this point was a man named Eurasius. 
By this time, it had become customary for the Romans to provide the tribes with gifts upon the ascension of a new emperor, as a way of starting their relationship off on a positive note. For whatever reason, Eurasius had decided to greatly reduce the value of the gifts given to the Alamanni when Valentinian ascended to the throne. Due to this insult, and with the knowledge that the victor of the Battle of Strasbourg was now dead, in 365 the Alamanni began raiding into Gaul once again. It was not as organized as the invasion the decade before, but it was enough to draw the attention of Valentinian while he was on his way to Lutetia, and prevented him from coming to the aid of his brother, the Eastern Augustus Valens, who was dealing with a revolt of his own at the time. Valentinian initially sent subordinates to deal with the invasion, but they proved ineffective. In late 365, he sent an army against the Alamanni, while he personally advanced to Duracatorum, modern Reims, to set up a command center. Upon the failure of the army to repulse the Alamanni, Valentinian determined that the problem was that they feared the enemy more than they feared the wrath of their emperor. Two of the original generals he had put in charge were killed in 366, and the standards of the Heruli and Batavi were captured. Valentinian, disgusted with the performance of the Batavi unit in particular, had them assembled before him, ordered they be stripped of their arms, and sold into slavery. The soldiers begged for another chance to prove their worth, and Valentinian reluctantly allowed them to rejoin the army with the promise that they would redeem themselves with the blood of the Alamanni. A new general, Jovinus, was put in command, and he proceeded to drive off the Alamanni from bases along the Mosul River and send them back over the Rhine. Jovinus captured some of the German chiefs and princes and had them executed in a brutal fashion. While Valentinian was not necessarily happy with this act, nor did he have anyone punished for it. While the Alamanni continued to exert influence on Gaul, the Franks and Saxons took advantage of their location on the coast of the North Sea to once again attack the island of Britannia, most likely taking advantage of their trade routes into Eboricum, the Germans aligned with the Picts in Caledonia, modern Scotland, and the tribes over in Iberia, modern Ireland. In 367, the Allies launched simultaneous invasions of Rome and Britannia, and overwhelmed the border legions. According to some writings, at many entry points the legions accepted bribes to let the barbarians through, and many Roman soldiers took this opportunity to desert and take part in the pillaging of the local communities they were sworn to protect. Constantius Chlorus and Constantine the Great had always paid attention to Britannia due to the island's importance to their rise to power, but Constantine's descendants had totally neglected the area after his death. The soldiers never got the kind of bonuses that legions fighting in other areas of the empire typically could get, since so much of those bonuses came from terrorizing communities beyond the Roman borders in the aftermath of one campaign or another. This could have been the end of Roman control of the island if the allied tribes had a common political goal, or really any political goal at all. But this was not a case of the native tribes trying to win independence, or the Franks and Saxons looking to conquer and occupy new territory. This was about capturing treasure and taking captives. And so once they entered Roman Britain, they left the remaining soldiers alone behind walled cities and fortifications, and focused on raiding the interior of the island. With Britannia in chaos, Valentinian first turned to one of the generals who had failed to push back the Alamanni, prior to the successes of Jovinus. 
Now, I think it speaks well of Valentinian here that he was willing to give one of his subordinates another chance at leadership after a previous failure, but in this case it did not pay off. So Valentinian had to turn to a general from Hispania, Flavius Theodosius, known to history as Theodosius the Elder. Theodosius landed his troops unopposed in the southeast of the island and began moving towards Lindinium. The Allies were still spread out and disunited, so the Romans spread out in small, highly mobile detachments and began to defeat them and turn them back. The soldiers then kept some of the treasure as a service bonus, but still returned the bulk of the recaptured plunder to the original owners. Theodosius also issued clemency to the Roman soldiers who had deserted if they returned to their post, which increased the available troops and decreased the number of raiders at the same time. While the German tribes would eventually overrun the island, they were not quite ready to displace the Romans. In the aftermath of this campaign, the Saxons on the continent continued to raid the northern coast of Gaul into 370. Valentinian had the northern fortresses reinforced, and eventually the Saxons and Romans agreed to a truce that saw the Saxons hand over many young men to serve in the Roman legions, another tribe contributing to the Germanization of Rome. Back on the continent, the Alamanni had broken up and scattered after their defeat by Jovinus in 366, expecting a Roman punitive campaign to follow. But thanks to the massive uprising in Britannia, no campaign could take place. Taking advantage of the Roman distraction, the Alamanni took it upon themselves to sack the city of Moguntiacum, or Mainz. A chief named Rando took advantage of a festival to sneak across the Rhine and cart off a large number of captives. In 368, Valentinian raised two armies to invade the Alamanni territory in a punitive campaign. The emperor himself would lead a Gallic army across the Rhine, accompanied by his eight-year-old son, Gratian, and flanked by the Magister Petitum and Magister Equitum. At the same time, a subordinate named Sebastianus would lead troops from Italia and Illyrica through Raetia into Alamanni territory from the south. As much as they could, the Alabani abandoned their villages and retreated into a mountainous region in Württemberg, most likely near the Limburg and the Swabian Alps. They nearly succeeded in capturing or killing Valentinian as he approached along an apparently unguarded path where the tribe had set an ambush. Once the emperor was secure, his army proceeded to advance up three sides of the mountain, Solocinium, facing stiff resistance from the Alamanni. Once the Romans pushed their way to the summit of the mountain, the Alamanni had to flee down the northern slope, right into the army of Sebastianus. After this victory at the Battle of Solocinium, Valentinian would leave future campaigning to his subordinates and return to his court at Trier. He spent more time on raising new troops and repairing the defenses of the Gallic border, and for the rest of his reign the Gallic border was pretty quiet. To better defend the territory, Valentinian ordered fortifications built on the eastern side of the Rhine, near the modern city of Heidelberg, in what was Alamanni territory. The Alamanni sent envoys to protest the construction, but the emperor refused to hear their complaints, and construction continued. But... Before the fortress was complete, the Alamanni managed to gather a force to attack the construction site and destroy the partially built fortress. But this victory for the Alamanni did not last. 
So, beyond their battles with the Romans and attempts to capture the wealth of their western neighbor, the Alamanni in this period had an intense rivalry with the tribe to their east, the Burgundians. The Burgundians at this time occupied territory on both sides of the Elbe River. The rivalry between the Burgundians and the Alamanni seems to be centered around control of salt deposits. As previously noted, in a land with such harsh winters, being able to preserve food using salt was vital to survival. Gibbon suggests that the salt deposits in question may have been near the Esel River, a tributary of the Rhine that was known for its rich salt deposits. While possible, it seems to me that the Esel is too far north to have caused direct conflict between the Alamanni and Burgundians. The Burgundians, like many Germanic people, had a more democratic process of appointing their king or chief, who they called Hindinos. This person was responsible for the martial and governmental functions of the society, and upon failures, defeat in battle, poor harvests, unjust policies, he could be quickly deposed. By contrast, the high priest of the tribe, the Sinistus, was sacred and perpetual, although it is not clear if the title was also hereditary. I'm curious if the decision to hold the political rather than the spiritual leader responsible for good harvests reflected a practical belief that a successful harvest required the organized effort and sound decision-making of the community, or the religious belief that the gods and priests were not to be questioned. Given this competition over resources between the Alamanni and the Burgundians, Valentinian decided to reach back into the standard Roman bag of tricks of supporting one tribe over another, and sent envoys to the Burgundians. Based on the maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Valentinian wanted the Burgundians to join in an anti-Alamanni alliance. The Romans would provide the Burgundians with supplies, weapons, and gifts. The Burgundians would attack the Alamanni from the east. And with the Alamanni distracted, the Romans could cross the Rhine, and the Alamanni would be crushed. The Burgundians were interested, but they questioned the Roman commitment in investing their own soldiers to provide the promised second front. A contingent of the Burgundians traveled to the Rhine in order to pick up the promised supplies and material, and also requested an audience with Valentinian directly in order to get assurances that the Romans would indeed invade the Alamanni territory if the Burgundians started this war. However, Valentinian's custom was not to meet with the tribal chiefs or ambassadors directly, as that was beneath the dignity of an emperor, and he only sent subordinates. Without an audience with the Augustus, the Burgundians declined to take up arms against the Alamanni. But in the end, it didn't really matter. The Alamanni had noticed the ongoing back and forth between the Burgundians and the Romans, and they did not have difficulty imagining what their two enemies might be discussing. It was clear to the Alamanni that the two sides were plotting some kind of campaign against them, and they needed to take some kind of action. Perhaps if the campaigns of the past decade had gone better, the Alamanni may have attempted a preemptive invasion of Gaul or the Burgundian territory. But especially so soon after the Battle of Solicinium, the Alamanni leader, Macrianus, decided it was best to break up into smaller groups and take refuge in the forests and mountains as best they could. Macrianus had come to power in the aftermath of that battle and most likely led the attack on the Roman fortress near Heidelberg. 
He was consistently a thorn in Valentinian's side during this period. But this breakup of the Alamanni forces cleared the way for Theodosius the Elder, now back from Britannia, to lead Roman legions across the Rhine, to engage in minor skirmishing with what warriors they could find, and then pillage and destroy the already depopulated communities. A pro-Roman puppet was then named the new King of the Alamanni, but no one really acknowledged his authority, and once the Romans left the area, Macrianus immediately returned to power. By the early 370s, Valentinian had succeeded in putting the western Germanic tribes back in their Roman-imposed territory, securing the northern borders of the empire, and rebuilding the legions along the Rhine with German conscripts. At this point, the upper Danube began requiring more of his direct attention. Much like his plan for rebuilding the Gallic defenses, Valentinian had ordered the construction of new fortifications in, in Illyria, including construction on the northern side of the Danube. Much like the controversy with the Alamanni, the Quadi complained that these forts were being built on their territory and demanded the Romans cease construction. The Magister Armorum for Illyria decided to err on the side of caution and had construction halted while he sent messages to Trier to get clarity on how best to proceed. Unfortunately for him, the Praetorian prefect advised Valentinian that this caution was due to cowardice and insubordination, and that someone needed to get to Illyria, remind these barbarians who's in charge, and put the construction project back on track. In fact, the prefect had the perfect man for the job, his own son, Marcellinus. I'm sure his candidate search was exhaustive. Marcellinus arrived to take over the project in the spring of 373 and displayed the type of leadership that comes most naturally to a child of privilege. He ignored the opinions and concerns of everyone else and demanded that the project be completed ASAP or the consequences would be dire. See, leadership is easy. You just yell at people to do what you want. Gabinius, the king of the Quadi, continued to protest that the construction project violated the territorial sovereignty of his people, and requested to meet with Marcellinus. Here was a chance for the young man to show that he was as adept at diplomacy as he was at project management. He invited Gabinius and his delegation to dinner, and once everyone was seated, Marcellinus had the Quadi king seized and executed in front of the guests. The rest were then sent back to let their people know what happens when you come to negotiate with Rome. This diplomacy stuff is easy. The Quadi reached out to the neighboring Sarmatians, and together they launched a massive invasion of Pannonia, just before the harvest season. Towns were destroyed, plunder and captives were taken back north of the Danube, and the populace was forced to flee behind the fortified cities of the area. The combined invasion force pushed into Moesia as well, and attacked all the way to Sirmium. The Romans were able to fortify the city with the available soldiers, which included a company of archers who greatly aided in the defense. When the Quadi and Sarmatians were not able to breach the walls, they turned back towards the frontier to attack the two border legions still in Illyria. As the leaders of the legions refused to coordinate with each other, the Sarmatian cavalry overwhelmed them, and they were easily defeated. Previously, in times of crisis, Valentinian had turned to his general, Theodosius. Unfortunately, Theodosius was currently in Africa, dealing with a separate crisis. 
Fortunately, the newly appointed Ducks, or military commander of Moesia, was a talented young officer who was able to reorganize the defenses and repel this invasion. That man's name was Theodosius, son of Theodosius the Elder, and the future last emperor to rule over both East and West simultaneously. At this point, Valentinian was forced to come to Sirmium in person to determine what needed to be done about the situation. From an objective standpoint, this was pretty clearly the fault of Marcellinus. If he wasn't going to be punished for killing Gabinius, he should at least be punished for not anticipating the violent response. Ambassadors from the Quadi and Sarmatians insisted that they only attacked because their king had been killed. Combined with the aggressive building projects, they could only assume that Valentinian had the worst intentions. But, fortunately for Marcellinus, when Roman officials investigated the matter, they concluded that this was clearly the fault of the no-good barbarians. Valentinian decided this crime called for a punitive campaign north of the Danube to make up for the destruction of Roman property and the loss of Roman lives. Throughout 375, Valentinian and his armies engaged in a violent and cruel slaughter of the Quadi and Sarmatian tribes, burning villages and forcing them all to scatter for cover. Towards the end of the year, he decided to set up winter quarters along the frontier so that he could continue to terrorize the tribes in the spring. He retired to Brukettio, near the modern city of Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia. A delegation from the Quadi and Sarmatians came to Brugetio to humbly submit to Rome and ask what the cost of peace would be. The Romans finally agreed that in exchange for providing fighting men for the legions, they would refrain from further violence. The tribes agreed and, once again, requested an audience with Valentinian. In this case, Valentinian made a rare exception and agreed to meet with the delegation. They approached the emperor's throne, bent over in supplication, and reaffirmed their commitment to peace with Rome. But they could not refrain from pointing out that this really was the result of Marcellinus murdering their king, and that while they themselves wanted peace, there were still elements, outcasts and criminals as far as they were concerned, who still wanted revenge and may not respect the treaty. Valentinian did not even attempt to hold back his fury, and... Well, let's hear what Gibbon has to say. Quote, He reviled, in the most intemperate language, their baseness, their ingratitude, their insolence. His eyes, his voice, his color, his gestures expressed the violence of his ungoverned fury. And while his whole frame was agitated with convulsive passion, a large blood vessel suddenly burst in his body, and Valentinian fell speechless into the arms of his attendants. In a few minutes, the Emperor of the West expired in an agony of pain, retaining his senses till the last, and struggling, without success, to declare his intentions to the generals and ministers who surrounded the royal couch." Unquote. After refusing to meet with barbarian delegations for most of his imperial career, his meeting with the Quadi and Sarmatians proved fatal, not due to treachery, but due to his own temper. With Valentinian's death, his son Gratian, still in his mid-teens, was proclaimed the Western Augustus. While this succession was not contested, 
the transition of power from a stern ruler who had focused his diplomacy around the stick rather than the carrot to an untested youth would have serious consequences for Rome and Romano-Germanic relations. Not so much in the West, but significantly for the East. Because if you know Roman history, you know that now is the time for us to discuss the Battle of Adrianople. And um, if you don't know your Roman history, next week we are going to discuss the Battle of Adrianople. <laughs>